Hello, my name is Adam Kamisaroff. I'm a professor at Keio University in Tokyo, Japan, and also the president-elect of the International Academy for Intercultural Research. Today, I'll be giving a talk entitled, What Does It Take to Become One of Us? National Identity and Inclusion. This talk is based on the research that I've been doing for some years now on national identity and social markers of acceptance. This talk is designed not only for professional researchers in the field, but also for members of the general public who are interested generally in issues of immigration, um, and also how national uh, people in different nations get a sense and construct a sense of who is a member of their societies. So, let me begin. The global migrant population exceeded 271 million in 2019, a figure almost doubled the 153 million reported in 1990. Migration presents an exigent socio-political challenge in the contemporary world, both in terms of how nation-states manage this accelerating phenomenon, as well as how individuals respond, either as migrants themselves or as members of their receiving community. Every society at this point in time faces a critical question. Do we choose an inclusive, evolving national identity that embraces new groups crossing our borders? Or do we opt for an exclusive one that prevents acceptance of people who fall outside of a narrowly defined ethnocultural group of co-nationals? The disturbing worldwide rise in xenophobia and native, nativist populist rhetoric has prompted a fervent search among intercultural communication scholars for ways to utilize our work to encourage people to frame migration as a benefit rather than as a threat, and ultimately to facilitate the acceptance of migrants in their societies. When belonging is achieved among migrants, not only can many social ills be softened or mollified, but individuals stand poised to reap diverse benefits. For instance, improved mental health for migrants, more harmonious intergroup relations between migrants and their receiving society members, and long-term economic contributions from highly skilled migrants who have settled as permanent residents. In order to gain the benefits of belonging, it's first important to explain what belonging actually is. Um, Hagerty, Lynch, Sauer, Patuski, Bausima, Bausima, and Collier in 1992 defined sense of, belo of belonging as the experience of personal involvement in a system or environment so that persons feel themselves to be an integral part of that system or environment. Social psychologists argue that, in fact, human beings seek belonging within interpersonal relationships and groups and are hence driven to form positive, lasting, and stable relationships to satisfy this basic human need. When such human needs go unmet and exclusion results, people can feel misery, frustration, anger, uh, as well as incompetence, underachievement, um, they can also lose their sense of self-esteem, self-respect, independence, and self-determination. On the other hand, connectedness and belonging are necessary to function optimally in terms of mental health, adjustment, and well-being. And this makes it a goal that is really worth working toward and aspiring for. Human concepts of nations, and by extension their national identity, play a critical role in the social processes determining the extent to which migrants achieve belonging and acceptance in their destination communities. 
In modern nation states, people construct a sense of similarity with their fellow group members through attributes, including ancestry, language, and beliefs that are presumed to be shared, though in fact are not necessarily so. These surmised common attributes form the content of national identity, and these attributes are used as criteria for established in-group members to maintain their in-group status and potential members to gain such status. I'll refer to such criteria, criteria from now as national identity markers or social markers. So what are some of these markers that people use to construct a sense of similarity? What are these criteria that people uh, use to construct a sense of you being one of us? They include many things. Could be, for example, based on my research that I've uncovered so far, language skills. People in the host community could expect migrants to speak, read, and or write the local language. It could be demonstrated attitudes or beliefs. For example, a belief in democracy or capitalism might be seen as a precursor for belonging in a certain society. Also behaviors. Um, can be very, very important in terms of deciding who's one of us. So here in Japan, where I live, reading the air, quote unquote, in everyday communication is considered a very important communication skill in order to gain acceptance. So um, in other words, being able to look at someone's nonverbal signals, their facial expressions, their gestures, listening to their tone of voice, and figuring out what they're trying to say without them necessarily saying it is a very highly valued skill. And then finally, following social norms um, is a very important part of gaining acceptance in the local community. So for example, here in Japan, once again, not talking on the phone in the train is considered an important criteria for gaining acceptance. In social psychology, national identity concepts are examined at the individual level, that is, the subjective definitions of the national in-group that people have is the focus of my research and the research of many people around me. Um, this includes the norms, values, and other characteristics that people utilize as membership criteria for deciding which migrants can become part of the national in-group. Unfortunately, migrants who do not fit these group prototypes of host nationals often struggle to become part of the national in-group, both in terms of social acceptance as well as the legal status and rights granted them by the government. So these national identity concepts have profound implications in people's lives. Increasingly, Traditional ideas that unite nations around characteristics like ethnicity are threatened by the global flow of migrants. For instance, in Japan, China, South Korea, uh, and South Korea, uh, citizenship, culture, ancestry, and ethnicity have long been broadly conceived as coterminous, uh, but all three nations are experiencing unprecedented domestic diversity. Therefore, mass migration has unleashed social and political forces resulting in conflict between those who prefer that national identity and group boundaries remain exclusively defined and others who demand more inclusive forms of membership. 
Consequently, nation-states today are struggling to define themselves more than ever as their citizens increasingly ask the questions, who are we and what does it take to become one of us? The responses are gravely important as they determine who can receive the material and symbolic resources that sustain people economically and psychologically every day. However, the good news is that representations of national identity are not impervious to change and may transform at any moment. This gives hope that exclusive citizenship representations can be recast, reshaped into more opening, welcoming, welcoming forms of national identity that encourage migrant belonging. Now, there are different types of national identity. National identity and its corresponding citizenship representations can be conceived in two ways, basically. One is ascribed and the other is achieved. Ascribed identity hinges upon what are largely immutable criteria, things that you cannot uh, acquire or achieve, such as biological descent, territory, um, in other words, your birthplace, um, and uh, also to a certain extent religion is something that's very hard to change, although it is possible. Uh, the number of people who do so is rather small. Um, alternatively, identity can be achieved through fulfilling social contracts, such as endorsing locally embraced values and ideals, respecting host cultural traditions, or demonstrating commitment to laws and institutions. Here, national identity becomes largely a matter of individual choice, so it is called an achieved form of identity. This fundamental dichotomy between ascribed and achieved forms of identity uh, clarifies how people construct national identity and in conjunction with social markers clarifies the criteria by which receiving society uh, receiving culture members decide whether to accept migrants as national in-group members or not. The distinction between ascribed and achieved forms of national identity has taken other forms, most commonly using the terms ethnic and civic identities respectively. Ethnic national identity embraces a representation of the national in-group based on a shared ancestral origin, while civic identity is realized through citizenship, participation in various institutions, and an emphasis upon common values, ideals, rights, and responsibilities among citizens. Most studies have found that civic representations of national idea, uh, identity are associated with far fewer anti-immigrant attitudes. But ethnic concepts of citizenship, where people think that being of a certain ethnic group is important uh, to become an in-group member, are in fact found to associate very highly uh, with anti-immigrant attitudes. There's a third kind of national identity uh, that has been proposed by Kim Licka, uh, which is called cultural identity, in which the national in-group is conceived as sharing, promulgating, and protecting a common culture. Though cultural national identity was originally thought to be open to immigrants who adopt the national culture, it has also been found by some researchers to associate with negative general attitudes towards immigrants, presumably because immigrants are perceived by majority group members who embrace this form of national identity as threats to the national culture and cultural homogeneity. Therefore, 
There is controversy over the extent to which cultural citizenship is actually open to newcomers or instead constitutes a modern proxy for ethnic national identity. Though we can talk about national identity as ethnic or civic, unacquirable or acquirable, ascribed or acquirable, achievable, it is important to understand that national identity is very complex. In other words, it can vary within the same country, even within the same human being. And this has a profound impact on how we decide who is one of us, or the focus of this podcast. Let me explain. First, there's a diversity of national identity categories within nation states. All members of any national group are actually highly unlikely to agree about the ethnic and or civic attributes that define their identity, and subgroups within each country often embrace very different forms of national identity. So, for example, different regions in the same country uh, might have widely accepted different forms of national identity. There might be some regions of a country that are more conservative, uh, focus more on ethnic forms of identity, and others that focus more on civic forms of identity that are open to anyone, regardless of their ethnic background. There are also uh, ethnic differences within each country. You might find that certain ethnic groups have different types of national identity uh, that they prefer. And then there's also, of course, various ideological factions that can embrace different national identity concepts, uh, conservative and liberal being one distinction that comes to mind. Also, most national minorities prefer civic rather than ethnic forms of national identity. Um, other differences include um, higher education. Uh, can actually predict greater commitment to civic rather than ethnic forms of national identity, according to one uh, research project done by Klinovich um, in a study of 31 EU nations. Um, and even different generations in the same country can have different national identity concepts. Fua Long and Hung uh, in a recent study demonstrated that in Singapore, actually there were different generational factions of national identity. Um, they concluded that immigrant participation in conscription or you know, conscribed obligatory military service is an important marker of naturalization, but more so among elder residents than younger ones. Um, in other words, the elder residents who have vivid memories of post-World War II uh, chaos um, and value a strong military deterrence tended to focus more on uh, military service as being an important means of gaining acceptance. Another issue that affects who people consider to be one of us is the inconsistent application of markers as criteria for social acceptance. In other words, within each country, national identity and its associated markers or criteria are likely to be used differently by the same in-group depending upon the out-group being considered. For instance, in a study that I did with Long and Tang of Japanese college students, we found that these students actually demonstrated less tolerant attitudes towards quote-unquote low-status immigrants 
who are more rigidly expected to have higher levels of Japanese skills in order to gain social acceptance than immigrants from more uh, prestigious groups, quote-unquote prestigious. Similarly, as a result of inconsistent treatment, immigrant groups may be less readily accepted by receiving nationals based on their racial appearance, country of origin, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic class, or even field of employment and level of professional skills. So in other words, the host society might have very different standards for, very, for different kinds of people based on all of the factors that I just mentioned. These criteria are often utilized to categorize migrants as desirable and worthy or, unfortunately, undesirable and unworthy of citizenship and in-group membership. And this results uh, often in social stratification and the creation of a hierarchy of cultures um, in host, many, many host societies around the world. It's also possible for the same individual to simultaneously embrace both civic and ethnic forms of national identity. For example, Americans may emphasize a civic identity that prioritizes the importance of respecting American institutions, laws, and freedom of speech, as well as an ethnic identity consisting of having European ancestors, being Christian, and speaking English, with such people choosing from conflicting clusters of acceptance criteria toward various groups in response to environmental demands, self-interest, and prejudices. In other words, the same person may use different acceptance criteria uh, depending on de in deciding who is one of us, depending upon the situation, um, and all of the factors I just mentioned related to self, as defined by self-interest, prejudices, environmental demands, and so on. And so one of the key points for future research is really to differentiate the contexts that emphasize particular citizenship representations at the individual level and the dynamics of how national identity concepts shift across contexts. So in other words, research really needs to unpack how people make these decisions, what kind of context, what kind of situations tend to uh, activate one kind of national identity concept versus another. Another dimension upon which people's beliefs about national belonging can vary is what we call explicit versus implicit beliefs, uh, or self-reports of perceptions, or knowledge versus um, unacknowledged and or unconscious associations. For instance, when people are asked whether another group is associated with a certain nationality, their implicit sentiments may differ subconsciously from their stated beliefs. In other words, what I say in terms of uh, who I'm accepting of might be very different from what my subconscious beliefs are. And Certain types of research can uncover those assumptions that people have, those biases that people have. So while in one study, um, while people may have said everyone is equally American, uh, generally European Americans, not only in this study but uh, across a broad swath of research, uh, generally European Americans are conceived as being more American than African, Asian, Latino, and Native Americans uh, subconsciously among both the majority, the European-American majority, and even many minority group members themselves. And this was uh, broadly reviewed by Devos and Muhammad in 2014. 
These types of findings expose an exclusionary, ethnic-based national identity that stands at odds with openly espoused, commonplace beliefs supporting a civic one, a contradiction that often uh, escapes individual conscious awareness. Despite the, all of the caveats that I've been mentioning, the civic, ethnic, and by extension achieved versus described approaches to studying national identity provide a very useful framework for understanding psychological conceptions of nationality, though such distinctions must be made with great sensitivity to the context and the variations that I've mentioned so far. These national identity concepts and their associated markers, viewed as most important for being admitted into such groups, enable us to specify which features matter most for gaining acceptance in a specific society. However, national identity research can also be subversive, as once such concepts and their associated criteria or markers are identified, they can be challenged if they are deemed too exclusive. For instance, national identity concepts can fail to reflect a country's actual demographic diversity, excluding citizens who are ethnic minorities. National identity concepts may also be utilized as justifications to reject exigently needed migrants. In Japan, widespread concepts of nationality recognizing only ethnic Japanese are at odds with the social acceptance of foreign labor that can potentially supplement the native workforce, which is being depleted by a low birth rate and a graying society. In such cases, grasping the markers of national identity and who benefits from them can serve as a first step in replacing discriminatory rep representations with more equitable representations. A relatively new tool in uncovering these criteria for who is one of us, or people's national identity criteria, are called social markers of acceptance, which were conceived by Long in 2014. Social markers of acceptance were defined um, by myself, Long, and Tang in 2020 as the perceptual signposts that recipient nationals use in deciding whether a migrant is a part of the host community. For example, uh, this could mean adherence to certain social norms, expression of mainstream beliefs, attitudes or values, and competencies such as language skills. Social markers of acceptance ex assess the degree of host society inclusiveness, as they make it very easy for you to measure which, how many, and to what extent markers are considered important as well as the degree to which these markers are considered achievable. So we can look at the importance of the markers, how many are expected, how strictly they're uh, expected, and then also whether they're conceived as something that migrants can even acquire in the first place. Recipient nationals' choices of markers indicate which they consider to be the essential attributes for migrants to possess, to possess and or adopt to be accepted in the destination society to the same degree as a native. Among receiving society members, the more markers expected, the greater emphasis upon their importance and the less achievable the markers acquisition is considered, then the narrower the acceptance criteria. In other words, the harder it is to become a member in those societies. On the other hand, fewer markers, loosely expected markers, and or highly anticipated achievability of the markers reflect a more open and inclusive benchmark for acceptance.
So the fewer markers expected, the more flexible the expectations around them, and also just the idea that people can achieve these if they're coming from another country um, are all ways of making people's uh, identity, national identity, more inclusive of migrant groups. In addition to being utilized to demarcate group boundaries and define national identity, uh, Commissar Vlong and Tang noted the potential of markers to be utilized as tools of exclusion, particularly when they're unrealizable through acculturation, for example, changing one's birthplace or genealogy, or if the markers are expected in quantities so numerous that they become almost impossible to achieve. Therefore, perception, therefore, uh, native uh, citizens often construct a social hierarchy in which they claim the dominant position and present themselves as the standard by which others, namely quote-unquote undesirable migrants, are judged, relegating them to the status of outsiders. So acting as acceptance criteria that are either too onerous or outright impossible for certain groups to acquire, uh, markers can become a means by which hegemonic uh, relations are structured, a hegemony that is in turn enforced through control over material and social resources. Future research must clarify how we can mitigate markers' potential to be used perniciously, while at the same time augmenting their potential to serve as vehicles by which migrants and their destination societies can forge a better sense of familiarity, commonality, and connection. Finally, I'd like to talk about some directions for future research and also general inquiry for non-researchers, points for us to consider from here and now. One area begging for clarification is the influence on outgroup attitudes and other relational outcomes of the intentions behind markers' utilization as, of, as acceptance criteria. Um, as these intentions also influence how we decide who can become one of us. In my own work, uh, a book chapter that I wrote in 2020, I moved in this direction by distinguishing between three kinds of intentions behind markers. Uh, normative intentions, punitive, in punitive intentions, and compassionate intentions. In other words, um, there are three intentions behind how people use markers in constructing group boundaries. When using a marker in a normative way, uh, people assume that migrants should, quote-unquote, follow the marker, often applying reasoning along the lines of, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, which is a very assimilationist ideology. In more extreme cases, hosts take a punitive, punitive approach, assuming that migrants not only should adopt valued markers, but if they do not, they deserve to be punished through sanctions such as social exclusion or even forced to return to their country of origin. Finally, markers can be compassionately employed. For example, when recipient nationals believe that migrants adopting to, adapting to a particular marker will improve their quality of life. Therefore, the primary motivation is to express concern for and to help migrants. For instance, um, I noted that among some Japanese university students that they actually wanted migrants to learn Japanese not because they felt they, the migrants had to or should be punished if they didn't, but rather they wanted the migrants to learn Japanese so they could improve their employment prospects uh, and avoid social isolation by making more Japanese friends. 
Research also needs to clarify um, when adopting markers is helpful to migrants and when it's not. Uh, as noted by Berman and Simon, rejecting markers and embracing one's heritage culture may be advantageous for some minorities in the U.S. For example, among some Latino populations in the United States whose lives are centered predominantly in their own communities, uh, native cultural norms, um, in other words, non-U.S. Uh, American cultural norms, may predominate. In this sense, adhering to recipient dominant culture markers, those of European Americans, could potentially be dysfunctional or even maladaptive. Finally, uh, it is critical that researchers and practitioners increasingly examine the difference between implicit and explicit conceptions of national identity and belongingness. In other words, even if people endorse in principle an inclusive type of national identity, in practice they may reject certain groups. And I mentioned uh, a bit about this type of bias earlier in the presentation. Once we better understand the complexity of our national identities, we can also see uh, we can also see how to lessen unconscious biases and make in-group concepts more inclusive. In conclusion, I'd like to offer some food for thought in the form of four questions that we can all ask ourselves. First of all, which markers are most important to you personally in deciding which immigrants or other cultural newcomers to accept in your home country? Second, which markers seem most important in your home country to the society at large? In other words, the markers that you think are important personally in number one might be different from those that are emphasized in the broader society that you live in for question number two. The third question I'd like to ask you is, is there any dark side to these markers or ways they can be used to exclude people? And then finally, how can we use the markers to be more inclusive of others? Ultimately, the aim of research in national identity and social markers is to better understand how societies can foster a sense of belonging among their migrants while also promoting intergroup harmony between migrants and their destination societies. I hope that highlighting national identity and marker-related research opens new attitude avenues of insight into achieving these elusive yet exigent goals. The world cannot wait. Thank you very much for your attention today.